Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 11th episode of the Nauticast entitled, um, Maybe Catelyn Might Have Done Something Wrong Right There, an analysis of A Game of Thrones, John 2, where Jon Snow says goodbye to Bran, Rob, Arya, and Winterfell forever. But probably not. As we say in all of our podcasts, our spoiler warning for those of you who are listening, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Kind of going doing something a little bit different this week. For those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, we do have a Patreon running right now, and and for those of you who are part of our Patreon campaign, and thank you all very much for those who donate, we give the option for those who contribute $10 a month, $10 or more a month to ask us a question. If you want to find a little bit more about our Patreon, feel free to check it out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. So this week, we got a couple of really great questions we wanted to um, to answer um, from from some of those patrons. And our first comes from Sir Matt of House Very Wrong and Many, Many Things, one of our sworn sword patrons. He asks, better Wyatt Earp, Kevin Costner or Kurt Russell? Emmett? I got to go with Kurt Russell on this one. Uh, more than anything else, just out of a love for him as an actor, you just put him on screen and I get a big dopey grin on my face no matter what he's doing. I wasn't even <laughs> listening to him when he was in Guardians of the Galaxy. I was just staring at him with my hands, head in my hands like the girl staring at Indiana Jones in the classroom <laughs> with love you written across her eyelids. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just, I like that kind of role with a certain, a certain aura of camp to it, which I think Kurt Russell just brings a little bit to. Uh, Kevin Costner is great at, at being stone-faced, uh, yes. but uh, which is a, is appropriate also for the role, but I prefer the kind of spin, the kind of energy that Kurt Russell brings to that kind of thing. And as we do in all things, I agree with you, Emmett. I believe that Kurt Russell <laughs> is the better uh, Wyatt Earp. Although, of course, as everyone knows, the real hero of that movie is, of course, Val Kilmer, uh, who plays Doc Holliday, who is a terrific Doc Holliday. And uh, probably, I think it's probably my favorite Val Kilmer role. Uh, although his role in Top Gun, of course, is, is, a, is a favorite of mine, uh, just for nostalgic reasons, as well as uh, the reason why that, that um, he's the actual hero of Top Gun, not Maverick in the movie, in case you're wondering. Certainly. And no homer erotic reasons, of course. Of, of course. course not. Of course not. Uh, I was just rewatching Heat, and I really love Val Kilmer in that. Uh, okay, yeah, that is a good one. Oh, that's more about, like, how he, how, how good he looks reloading a gun more than it is any dialogue acting. Val Kilmer just looks, looks really, really, really good shooting everybody up. That's just his, his, his natural skill set. I mean, I just love that scene where he's running down the street with his hair, like, flying behind him with, like, a, uh, that Russian or, or Czech-made assault rifle. And, yeah, that's, exactly. that's an excellent shot. Every, and, De Niro and everyone else in that gang has, like, the no business, like, the, the no fooling around crew cuts, like, the perfect businessman look. And Valkyrie's <laughs> got this wild, untamed mess of blonde hair. And then he cuts it at the end because symbolism. But I'll leave that to my scene-by-scene <laughs> scene podcast about Michael Mann's heat. This is a chapter-by-chapter podcast about Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, maybe somebody will do a scene-by-scene of, uh, of Heat. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be great. That would, that would be the manliest thing ever. Um, oh, yeah. So our, our, our second question comes from Sir Adam of House Slow, another sworn sword, who asks, Have either of you tried any of the Song of Ice and Fire game mods, such as the Crusader Kings 2 or Mountain Blade conversions? Enjoying the podcast. Keep it up. Uh, I yes. played... The Crusaders Kings 2 
uh, mod a little bit out of sheer curiosity and love for the world. I admit um, my gaming skills are, are very limited, so I found myself <laughs> overwhelmed. Um, you're definitely a more experienced gamer than I, but uh, I gather you had a similar experience with that mod. So it's funny, like I tried to play Crusader Kings 2, uh, just the vanilla version, because I had gotten it on Steam on a deal a couple years ago. And I remember I was, um, and, and I was probably 29 or 30 years old. So I was not, I was not a young, not as young as I could, could have been when I started playing. So after about two, two hours, and it wasn't two hours. So I'm two hours into the game and I'm still trying to learn the, the dynamics of the game and the mechanics behind it. And I went, I, I just don't have time to, to learn this game. Like it's, it's just too, too hard for me to do. Uh, now I did, uh, for a little while, I did try out the, um, Medieval 2 Total War, uh, Westeros mod, which is actually a really fun mod. Um, Medieval 2 Total War has much simpler game dynamics. It doesn't take me two hours to learn how to play the game. It took me about, about 15 minutes, which was great. Uh, and, uh, I enjoyed doing that about, you know, five years ago, I think is when I was doing that. Uh, I never played any of the, I never played Mountain Blade, although I played a, a similar game that's called Chivalry. Um, and I still play that one every once in a while. Uh, and I play as the name Brendan Blackfish and I, I counter all sorts of Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones names of people on there. I, I've seen Sandra Clegane. I've seen Ned Stark. I've seen The Mountain. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cool game. It's kind of like one of those slash games. Um, not too complicated. I just run around and with a sword and block and slash and, and hack and do all those things. Um, but we, if you guys are, are interested in, in um, some folks who are really good at playing some of these strategy games, History of Westeros podcast, um, Aziz and Ashea, they both play. And I believe they've done one or two live streams of their playing on their YouTube channel. So yeah, check them, check them out if you want to see some folks talk about that. I think they've had some crazy adventures, something like Stannis married this the daughter of Aegon, you know, young Griff or something like that, and you know, burned someone and all sorts of cool things. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they had a uh, an Essos expansion pack which brought like the Dothraki in and everything like that. So it's it's a cool game, I believe. It sounds really fun, but it's just it's just too much for me to do. I agree. I've gotten to the point where I'm just like, I'll just watch other people play it. That just sounds much more fun. That sounds oh, like absolutely. sounds like that sounds like my energy level. Oh yeah. Uh, our third question is uh, comes from uh, Lady Sarah of the Saturn Moons, and she asks, "I wanted to ask." She asks, "I wanted to ask you guys what you think the impact of Game of Thrones on popular culture, the entertainment landscape, will be. Will it stay massively popular? Will it be like the YA trend that developed post Hunger Games and then disappeared? I realize we're all waiting for the next book, but once the show is done in 2019, what then?" Wow, that's a pretty good question. Um, I, I I have looked into my crystal ball on this one and trying to come up with a uh, to see the future what the um, the entertainment landscape will look like in the uh, the years post 2019 and here's here's what I think I think that Game of Thrones will stay relevant and I believe it'll stay relevant primarily because even though season eight will will begin and end in 2019 the successor shows are coming after that so we're going to get at least one and probably more than one um, show of Game of Thrones shows centered around some of the historical sides of, of A Song of Ice and Fire, some of the uh, things that we saw in the world of Ice and Fire, and some of the things we will see in more depth in Fire and Blood Volume 1. Uh, I think that The Dance of the Dragons is a strong contender to be one of those shows. I think that has all of the components of Game of Thrones that HBO might want to show. You got dragons, you have uh, a 
a dynastic succession crisis. You have all sorts of really interesting uh, things that you can utilize for that. So I don't think that Game of Thrones is going to be going away. It will be cleared off the, um, the, the entertainment landscape. I do think it may be a little bit less, at least initially, as the, as the successor shows build up. But I do think that by the early 2020s, I think that we'll be having will be in a similar place of maybe Game of Thrones being at its season three or season four level. Well said across the board. I agree. I think, you know, it's I, to steal from the end of Watchmen. Nothing ends, Jeff. Nothing ever ends. That's the media <laughs> landscape we're in now. Uh, you know, any any valuable IP is going to be wrung dry for all it's worth uh, by whoever has hold of it. And as you say, the successor shows are coming. Uh, Game of Thrones has already had a huge kind of merch and con and media impact, and that's going to die down somewhat after the main show is done, but not entirely. So I think it's right. it's it's planted its feet in the uh, the kind of franchise driven pop culture world that is dominant now, for better or for worse. My my fear is maybe not fear. Maybe this is a good thing, but at least my fear right now is that we'll get. That Game of Thrones will become something similar to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you'll just have Game of Thrones shows all the time, or Game of Thrones movies, or Song of Ice and Fire movies. And, and I'm not opposed to that necessarily, but I do think the MCU has a number of great uh, ouvroirs um, that, that are out there. You have good ones like the Thor movies, Captain America, the Avengers movies, although the second one was not terrific. Um, but I'm also afraid that we'll have some kind of mediocre ones too there. The kind of, uh, you know, your Iron Man 3s. And I, I think you love Iron Man 3, and I apologize for that, but I was not, it was not one of my favorites. Or um, uh, s- some of the other ones, Ant-Man uh, was not a, a favorite of mine, Captain or uh, Doctor Strange, another one that I just, it was, it was they're all passable movies. And I think there's a, there's a great channel called, um, I have to look it up. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But there's a great YouTube channel which has a, um, a video called the the plague of passable movies and they reference a lot of these types of marvel cinematic universe movies that are okay but they're just okay uh, there's a lot of great hype built around them and i think that's good i think it's good that we're in, a, in an era where comic book movies are cool i think it's i think it's also cool from our perspective or at least from my perspective that fantasy shows and fantasy movies are are in and are cool as well. I guess I would just like to see some development of different fantasy shows. And, and I know folks like Lynn manuel are developing the, um, the name of the wind, um, as, as a television show, which is great because the name of the wind has all sorts of songs in it and things like that. If you've ever read the, that book, but I, I would like to see a little more development beyond just Martin's world into kind of the greater, uh, what fantasy has to offer, whether that's Wheel of Time, whether that's The Name of the Wind, like I referenced before. I just would like to see a little bit more I- expansion out from just Game of Thrones. That's true. Uh, Iron Man, you're just, you're just wrong about Iron Man 3, Jeff. You're just going to have to live <laughs> in the world where that's the case. I love that movie dearly. It's got the Shane Black script. It's got a lot of fun action scenes. But, again, that'll have to wait for my scene-by-scene Iron Man 3 podcast. Uh, more, more to the point here, I... I fear that the model might be the Lord of the Rings franchise, the movie franchise, in that you have this initial rush of action and energy and praise from the breakthrough, and then everything that follows feels like, uh, to borrow from Red Letter Media, it feels like having the appetizer after the meal, like you've already had the main thing that everyone is interested in and cares about and where the, the readership is. Uh, jumping on to the lore, I think can definitely be done well, especially a story like the like the dance. But I think you're going to face diminishing returns, and maybe 
the money will start to dry up. I think what's interesting is unlike something uh, like Tolkien is that, yeah, there will eventually one hopes be new canonical material. And uh, the yes. Wings of Winter is going to be an interesting phenomenon in terms of how it intersects with the show in that it's behind the show, but also right. incorporates elements that the show doesn't have. Um, and also as many characters who are, who are who have lived past when the point they die in the show, uh, Barristan right. being a big example. Stannis is probably going to be another one. So that that's going to be interesting to watch uh, how that has an effect. But yeah, I think I think Game of Thrones has a cemented place in the media landscape. I think the the quality and the attention paid to it may waver. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, final question for this week from Sir Travis, another sworn sword. We all know A Song of Ice and Fire is one of the richest stories ever told and has the most fervent and demoted fandom in the world. Great theories abound about the characters and plot, but there are some wild-ass crazy ideas, too. Talk about speculation in this community. Why do you think A Song of Ice and Fire fans go to such lengths and depths? Has George deliberately contributed to this with the time between books or the layered prose and symbolism built into the books? Or is this speculating somehow indicative of the interconnected age we find ourselves in? Jeff, <laughs> your thoughts. Wow, that's a that's a lot to respond to. Um, it's a brief, meaty question for sure. It is a extremely meaty question, and, and thank you, Travis, for the question. Um, briefly, if, if I can try and summarize my thoughts, I, I think it is people go into the amount of depth that they do because the the story is good. I, I think that's that's not saying anything revolutionary necessarily, um, but I, but I also do think that there is a um, uh, there is depth to the story as well that it, it that several reads of the story can bring about new understandings of of different characters you know in our dance versus storm episode we talked a lot about how um john and danny and Tyrion's uh point of view chapters from a dance with dragons were initially regarded as of poor quality and of kind of uh, having the plot kind of run on a treadmill but when you reread them, you start to see that George has put a lot of emphasis on the psychology and on the themes behind the story. And I think those are really good things there. And I think there are things that sometimes you, we have to dig into the text a bit more and kind of do the, the analysis piece of it. I also think too, like the Song of Ice and Fire is a really uh, theory rich uh, set of books right now because we are five books out of seven done. So there's five books in three. Duncan Egg novellas out of a proposed 12 to 15, I think is what George has talked about. So there's a lot of unanswered questions that, that are that exist in right now in the fandom. The thing about that, though, is that as the length of the wait goes on, we did talk about this in the Dance versus Storm episode. There are diminishing returns, I think, in terms of those theories. I think we're, a lot of the things either retread ground that's been tread previously or they become really big stretches in terms of some of the theorizing. And, you know, we've seen that in the years since The Dance with Dragons was released, where Game of Thrones explodes as a as a cultural phenomenon, inter international cultural phenomenon, really. And then you see these theories kind of arise, and uh, I don't want to call anyone out in particular, uh, but you, there are some things that are major stretches and that kind of fly in the face of what um, – I think that George intends in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, I, I don't think it's a deliberate that George is like deliberately expanding the time between books in, so that we can develop theories. I think if George had his way, he would have The Winds of Winter out three years ago and, and would have A Dream of Spring coming out this year in advance of 
of Game of Thrones season season eight. Um, but I do think that it's, it's uh, the density and the depth and the thematics and the identity side of, of A Song of Ice and Fire are things that are target rich, I guess would probably be the best term to use for um, for, for how, how fans interact with it. And the other thing too, and, and this is my final point, and I, I said it was going to be short now and I'm not being short, is that there is a huge A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones community. So we have the ability now to go through the books together and kind of pull apart all of the things that George has layered into the books. You know, the great example is the R plus L equals J uh, theory. Um, theory, really, well, barely a theory at this point. Um, fact. The fact that, known as R plus L equals J. The fact known as R plus L equals J. Uh, that is something that I think George R. R. Martin has talked about, and I think he's referencing this, where he's talked about how in like the 80s and 90s when you didn't have any real online presence that so was just getting started in the mid by the mid 90s probably people wouldn't have been able to decipher all the clues but now you have thousands and millions of people delving through the books and finding things and sharing those ideas it does lead to a, a mind meld of different ideas and concepts so we can kind of deconstruct and take apart George's um, carefully laid mysteries and they are really carefully laid that's the thing that kind of sometimes gets lost like like the r plus l equals j stuff a lot of those things are 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 layered and they're they're um uh shit what's the word like ambiguous clues that become less ambiguous when you start like connecting different parts of when people start connecting different parts of the, of the plot together and i think that's that's something that's that's of a benefit and i think it's really great and it brings a, a sense of community to the a song of ice and fire community it's true. I think there is the Westworld problem where people get so far ahead of the writers that the reveal might have less impact. But, I mean, I think, you know, even the version on the show, which irritated both of us in a number of ways in terms of the context, uh, still had an emotional impact purely in terms of, you know, it felt like you were building a, a huge building and the, the final stone had been laid into place. There's yes. still an impact to having that reveal that cut from the baby's face to John's face is still a, an emotional oh gosh, moment yeah. no matter how you get there. Um, and I think that's what, you know, I think, I think a lot of theories go off course when they don't think about the emotional impact and tying it to character, because that's what a lot of the most, most of the greatest song of ice and fire reveals are geared around important character moments and the ones that aren't are the weaker ones like the the Joffrey as cats as the guy who hired the cat's paw to kill Bran <laughs> I think is one of the weaker twists in large part because it's not a big deal in terms of how we think about Joffrey because right. Joffrey's already a monster and it's not a big deal for the people thinking about it because Tyrion and Jaime who are the ones who bring it up already despise Joffrey and right. don't care what happens to him so other than that though most reveals are really tied to character and I think that's what really pulls people in is that Stuff like R plus L equals J, it's not just, it doesn't just click logistically. It fills you with a sense of wonder at how the story is coming together and what this means for John and what it's meant. It, like, it, you can't understand Ned Stark without understanding R plus L equals J. Like, the character is radically different once you realize that. Because previously, he's a guy who once had a bastard in some circumstances. Uh, and once you realize the truth, he's a guy who's built his entire life around keeping this secret and it's yes. devastated him. Yeah. yeah so I sure. think that, I think that's what has kept the, the theorizing that's at the heart of the fandom so vibrant is the sense of real emotional weight or like, you know, the stuff about Egan's parentage. A lot of that is 
rooted in for me and like the the impact it's going to have on John Connington. Yes. Like that's the character we're given through to understand that character. And if he were to learn that Egan isn't Rhaegar's son, he would be existentially destroyed. Right. So that's, you know, that's, that's the hook. And I think that you can divvy up. It's not a perfect rule, but I think you can divvy up good and bad theorizing. Well, oh, yeah, for sure. not necessarily in terms of whether it's going to come true, but whether in terms of it's, it's, you know, drawing in a, in a, in a valid way from the, from the books. But I also agree with you that, you know, the way our media landscape works now has contributed to uh, theorizing in a way that doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with what's going on in the story. Look at how many theories abounded about Lost and Battlestar Galactica or the recent <laughs> or stuff like who Ray's parents are uh, in recent media that don't amount to much of anything because it was never planned or was planned to be much more mundane or they were just, you know, they panicked at the end and came up with something. So I think we can easily overexert ourselves in that regard, yeah. and that's just something to watch for. And 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 the space the spaces between books, I agree, it's not deliberate, certainly not. But the spaces between books have uh, have led people to believe it, it's this kind of thing where we've been living with R plus L equals J for so long that some people rejected as quote too obvious, <laughs> which is just very frustrating because like you no. Know, that secret wasn't written with the intent to be mulled over by an online community for over 20 years right. and and thus to be obvious to us by now. That's not that's not built into the story structure. That's just an effect that it's had afterwards. So I think that bleeds into theorizing somewhat sometimes. And um, and that 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 can definitely that can definitely hurt things. The one final thing I'll say in this count is that. Martin clearly wants us to do this because he gives us multiple scenes of people like theorizing as though they are readers about <laughs> stuff going like the classic example is right after the house of the undying when Danny and Jorah sit around puzzling what's the mummer's dragon what could this vision have meant right. what did this image mean it's and it's just it's like they're on reddit arguing about what what the visions in the house of the undying could possibly mean so Martin knows this is going on and knows this is part of the appeal to his his Story when you write a chapter like the House of the Undying or Brand Three Game of Thrones, which we'll get to before long, where you have all or the Forsaken, where you have all these visions that are clearly symbolic and clearly point to something happening in the future, you're supposed to interpret this, and there's supposed yes. to be multiple paths. It's just that some people take that approach to every single sentence in the series, right? And that's that starts to deliver diminishing returns. The recurring theme of the episode: diminishing returns. Oh yeah. When you're when you think it's baked into Every single paragraph. When at some point you just got to say, you know, Martin just likes writing food. There's not always a secret or hidden meaning in it. Sometimes he just likes writing food. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 very much a, a live by the sword, die by the sword situation. I think the the best of fandom theorizing is what turns into the worst when when it gets overdone, and as you said, it kind of turns into an echo chamber after so much time without new content. Yeah, one hundred percent agree. I, and the thing is, too, I might have spoken a little bit too too harshly about that. People are retreading old theories. There are new things that are popping up. I know that uh, you know Chloe, our uh, our friend and friend, um, lies in overgold on Twitter is doing a great series of posts on Ashara Dane, which is kind of blowing my mind and changing my mind a little bit too. Um, looking forward to to seeing what more that she has to put out there. And there's other other people too who are doing really cool stuff. And I've done stuff recently too, and so I don't. I don't want to say that there's no, there's nothing left to to mine out of out of the books to find new things that are interesting and intriguing, and things that George uh, is intending for us to to find interesting and intriguing and to uh, kind of delve into. Um, and and I'll close the uh, with this is that uh, 
George had said has said once um, something to the effect of, you know, the book these books are intended to be read and reread because I want people to go into the books and try and find out new things and and different uh, aspects that I'm putting into the books. So go ahead and read and reread and theorize, analyze, do all the great things that you're doing right now. It is George R. R. Martin endorsed. Well said, my friend. I will say, though, since I made this mistake in the previous episode, Chloe Ketchum's Twitter handle is at Lizen Arbor. It's oh. not as in Liber. It's not as uh, at Lizen Arbor Gold. I made that mistake and got crucified for it. So I'm just trying to save you from the same freight, my podcast husband. Uh, <laughs> Chloe, Chloe has no mercy and will strike you down. This is true. This is very, very true. Well, thank you to those who've asked those questions. We did get a few more questions, and we will try and feature them next week. And we'll also throw up another post on our Patreon uh, for those who are interested in asking us questions. Again, it's $10 a month. Uh, if you want to ask us a, a question, you also get a, a one day early release of the episode for, um, for $10 a month. And you know, there's the other, the lower tier $5 a month, uh, you can listen to our, our special episodes and uh, we're, uh, we're happy to announce that our next special episode that'll be for Patreon only folks is going to be all about the fate of Barristan Selmy. And you guys might be interested to know that Emmett and I have very different takes on what Barristan Selmy is going to be doing in the Winds of Winter, whether he's going to survive the Battle of Fire, or and who he's going to end up supporting or not supporting, depending if he's dead or not. Come the uh, come the battle, come after the Battle of Fire. So um, if you're interested, take a look at our Patreon. Um, again, it's at patreon.com forward slash not a cast a s o i a f. We're finally going to have something to fight about, Jeff. It's great. We disagree. It's this is just one of those issues where you're wrong and I'm right, and we'll get to explore that at length. It's going to be one. Yeah. See, what Jeff thinks Barrison's going to do in Winds of Winter is things, and what I think Barrison's going to do in Winds of Winter is die. <laughs> so we're just going to have that have that little back and forth. It's going to be really good. I'm going to uh, I'm going to stock up on some uh, bourbon, and I'm going to uh, and some cigars. You can imagine it being this kind of lounge or bar scene. Well, I guess he can't smoke in bars anymore these days in most states. In the United States, at least. Uh, but think about it like a cigar, whatever. I don't care. Uh, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, it'll be a good debate for us to, to kind of delve into and for you guys to get a uh, our, our takes on, on what we think is going to happen to the White Knight. You were just possessed by Ron Swanson for a second. We became the, the Ron Swanson and Ben Wyatt, A Song of Ice and Fire Hour, <laughs> which 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 on, on, on further reflection, we really should have claimed as the name for our podcast. We really... we. We missed the ball here. But yeah, for a second, I thought you said you were going to stock up on quotes. But then you said you were going to stock up on bourbon. Because you're a man and I am not, Jeff. Oh, that's we not know. true. We're both, we're both soy boys. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's true. Very feminine hosts. Anywho. So, um, again, thanks for, for contributing to the Patreon. And check it out if you're, if you're interested. And now we turn our attention to John's second chapter. Brief synopsis. Jon Snow is climbing the stairs to his half-brother Bran Stark's bedchamber with Ghost. It's the last day before Jon departs for the Night's Watch in the Wall, and Jon wants to see Bran one last time before he goes. But there's a giant obstacle in the way, Catelyn Stark. Catelyn hasn't left Bran's bedside since he was brought there after his fall. Jon stands at the door and decides finally, and bravely, to walk in. A wolf howls and Catelyn looks at Jon. What are you doing here? I came to see Bran, to say goodbye. 
Catelyn tells him to go away, but John refuses. He comes closer to Bran and tells Catelyn that she can't stop him. When he sees Bran, he feels sick. The boy's eyes are open, yet sightless, and his legs are bent at a grotesque angle. Bran, John says, I'm sorry I didn't come before. I was afraid. Don't die, Bran. Please. We're all waiting for you to wake up. Me and Rob and the girls. Everyone. Catelyn watches John, but doesn't really say anything at that moment. John finally says goodbye and prepares to depart. But then Catelyn talks to or through John, bitterly telling John that the gods answered her prayers not to take Bran with her. John pauses and reluctantly tells Catelyn that it wasn't her fault that Bran fell. Catelyn snaps that she doesn't want any of John's absolution. As John prepares to depart, she calls after him. It should have been you. John heads down to the yard quickly and sees Rob. Rob asks how it went with Catelyn. She was um, very kind. They exchange brotherly words and hugs. Rob tells him that Benjen is looking for John, but John has one last stop to make before he heads out with Benjen to the wall. Then I haven't seen you, Rob replies. John heads up to the keep to find his sister Arya. There he sees Arya and Nymeria pecking clothes to prepare for their journey to King's Landing. Arya complains that Septim Ordain told Arya that she has to repack her clothes as they weren't folded properly, the way a lady is supposed to fold her clothes. Fortunately, though, Arya repacking her clothes gives John an opening. He has a present for Arya. He pulls a long, thin object out for her. A sword. A thin blade seen most often in the free cities of Bravos, Pentos, Mir, and the other free cities. John gives Arya her first lesson in swordplay. Stick him with the pointy end. They banter back and forth for a minute, and Arya tells John that all swords have names. John ha- and John already has a name for the sword. Arya's, Ar- Arya's unsure of the name, but then John says, Can't you guess? It's your very favorite thing. Needle! The memory of Arya's laughter warms John on his way to the wall. And that is a Game of Thrones, John 2. Beautifully done, sir. Lots of lots of great quotes there along the oh, way. Oh, yeah. Some, some of the really more memorable dialogue scenes in the whole story happen in this chapter, especially right there at the end with Arya. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, the opening line really sums it all up. John climbed the steps slowly, trying not to think that this might be the last time ever. And Bran, too, as we covered in our episode on that chapter, was the false farewell. It was Bran trying to say goodbye to everything but ultimately failing and ultimately not leaving Winterfell behind, at least not for now. John 2 was the real deal. This is the this, the final chapter of this suite of Winterfell chapters. We've had seven chapters in a row set at the castle, and now we're going to go across the narrow sea for the next chapter, and by the time we come back, most of the POVs will have split, either going off to the north, in John and Tyrion's case, or going off to the south, in Ned, Arya, Sansa, and eventually Catelyn's case, leaving Bran all alone. Uh, and this chapter, accordingly, is all about leaving home, facing your complicated feelings about it, your home and your family, and growing up, or at least starting to. John still has a lot of illusions to be dashed, as we'll see in Tyrion 2 and John 3, when he's uh, on his way to the wall and getting to the wall. And he can only really cope with that because he starts to give up on his childhood here. This mm-hmm. is very much a, a, a gauntlet he is going through as he, he starts to step up to the plate to become one of the main characters of the story. And uh, you, can, you can see that in the kind of... The, the meetings he goes through in this in this chapter, the, the three big ones with Catelyn and Bran, then with Rob in the courtyard, and then with Arya in her bedroom. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's great to get those uh, meetings. Uh, you have a, a terrific way of, of talking about it, uh, which I won't spoil right now. Um, it's cool, too, um, in that George R. R. Martin has talked about 
how he's he looked at the early part of Game of Thrones as similar to Lord of the Rings, where you have the characters splitting out and doing their separate quests and their different things that they're going to be doing. And then um, he said for The Wizard of Winter that he plans to start bringing the threads back together. So here he is splitting the threads out and sending them all on their way. Bran stays at Winterfell. John is going to the Wall. Arya is heading south with King's Landing with her father and sister. And you will, um, and it's it's great. It's it's a great little um, structure that he has uh, here, talking about the different ways that he'll, uh, um, uh, where he's sending these characters and the different adventures or misadventures that they're about to embark upon. And uh, and yeah, it's 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 a cool chapter. I, I did like this chapter a bit more than I liked John one. In fact, a whole lot more. I think it's 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 that Martin is improving in his prose in John's chapters as we progress. Um, but still, it's 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 still not my favorite necessarily early chapter. But it's it's a good chapter too, I would say. And I do like the interactions that that John has here with each of the people that he sees in in the chapter. Absolutely, each of these meetings is, is really important for John's character, and you can tell because he comes back to them. They're really primal scenes, and they're motivating him as far down the line as a dance with dragons. Uh, the first one, of course, is the really intense one uh, with, with Bran and Catelyn. You have the first time we've seen Bran since his fall. He was just spoken about in Tyrion 1. And it's, it's you know, it, it hits your heart, especially after what we talked about with, you know, Bran being so innocent and youthful and sweet in his own chapters. And he's described here, uh, she, Catelyn, was holding one of his hands. It looked like a claw. <laughs> this was not the Bran he remembered. The flesh had all gone from him. His skin stretched tight over bones like sticks. Under the blanket, his legs bent in ways that made John sick. His eyes were sunken deep into black pits, open, but they saw nothing. The fall had shrunken him somehow. He looked half a leaf as if the first strong wind would carry him off to his grave. Yet under the frail cage of those shattered ribs, his chest rose and fell with each shallow breath. So, I mean, it really gets across... Gets across that that wretched sadness you feel when a, a loved one has been hurt. About you, you want to reach out and you want to love them, but you're also kind of just reeling from how wrong everything feels. Like this is not, like he says, this is not the brand he knew. It just doesn't like the classic thing where, you know, someone goes to uh, when a loved one dies and they see them laid out at the wake and they just say, "That's not, that's not my husband. That's not my mother. Right. That's not my son. That doesn't. That might be the the vessel for them, but this, it, the person isn't the same." Yeah. And it's it's this great uh, tear jerking uh, crossroads for both Bran and John because those are two characters who are on very blatant coming of age stories, especially in this first book. And you see this this kind of meeting moment where they're both losing their innocence. Bran has lost his, and now the sight of Bran is making John lose his innocence. And so you get this this quote you said it just pulls out of him the "Don't die, Bran! Please, we're all waiting for you to wake up." You can tell he's just. It's, it's the all those short little clauses. So you yeah. can tell it's just pouring out of him. It's not something he's thinking about. It's not something he planned to say. It took so much courage just to get into the room. So this is clearly not a speech he's planned. It's just the the feeling coming out of him at the moment. And I agree. I think it works better than John 1 because it's not... The rush of emotion doesn't feel entitled or annoying. No. It feels very genuine and very appropriate. So I think John comes off more relatable here than, than in the first chapter. And Catelyn herself... Obviously, we'll get much more into what she says to John and the impact it has later on in the episode, but uh, purely in terms of how she comes off as a character in the scene here in her own right, uh, she 
she's as we'll see in Catalan three, she's barely keeping it together at this point. Yeah. Uh, she, she first she doesn't seem like she recognizes him. Then, as you say, she's talking, but in a way that just seems like she's talking out loud, not really to him. And then John mentions right before she drops the it should have been new line that she's looking at him as if for the first time. So she's like <laughs> she's disassociating basically at this point. It yeah. seems like moment to moment, uh, barely holding it together. And so and so, of course, this is the moment when the long simmering tension between her and John reaches the surface. Right. Because she's like sure her reserve, her cur- courtesy is a lady's armor and her armor is down. Right. She's extremely vulnerable and grief-stricken, and so this is the moment when she can't hold back the kind of bile she's been feeling towards Jon Snow. So it finally all comes out just as he's leaving, which is just, you know, that's that's some really potent and, and realistic drama right there. It's just good stuff. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. When we get to Catelyn's next chapter, we find out that she hasn't slept in days. I mean, she might have, like, taken a catnap here and there, but she's catnap. <laughs> catnap. Ah. Kapow. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but she hasn't slept in, in days. And when she finally confronts the, uh, the cat's ball and defends Bran, or rather Summer defends Bran, she, she has a part in defending Bran as well. Uh, after that, she sleeps for, I think, three days straight, I think is what it's reported when she wakes back up. So she's, she's at, a, at her most vulnerable, um, moment here. I think it's a great point. And it's interesting in, in, you know, in my own experiences in the, in the United States Army, uh, some of the uh, the the lack of sleep uh, and the lack of food and things like that, they do bring out the person that you are beneath the armor. They bring out the sense of the the person that you are, and you kind of discover a part of yourself that you may not uh, you may not know as well, and you may not like as much. And we see a part of Cat here that is not extremely likable, and. You know, it's uh, we, we again. We will talk about that that scene uh, at the very end of this this podcast because um, it is a, a pivotal scene and one that that brings up a lot of debate and discussion about Catelyn Stark and who she is. But the thing about this scene, though, is that it the the thing that I like about it is that it feels very real to Catelyn's experiences. She just to Catelyn's experiences. She just has seen her beloved son, maybe even her favorite son. Uh, fall, break his legs, and he. And at this point, in the story is we. She doesn't know that he's going to survive. And you know, as the readers who are rereading, we know that he does survive and he comes back. But at the same time, and, and that does inform our perspective. But we also have to look at it from the perspective of the characters involved, and we have to take their perspective, not knowing the future of the story as it progresses. That Catelyn is really torn up about Bran falling and really hurting from it, and. Some of that bile and venom that comes out is is as a result of of her un, uh, of the unknown of not knowing whether Brandon is going to make it or not. Yeah, I think you nailed it, man. And it's it's all part of the the fall of innocence that this whole book is focused on, especially these early Winterfell chapters. And that's supposed to be mirrored in our own fall in terms of understanding what this series and fantasy as a whole is supposed to be about. But you see that with the transition from. You know, Ned talking about Lyanna and how beautiful she was and how much he and Robert loved her to the state of those two saddled men staring at her statue in the crypt. Mm. That holds with, you know, the Catelyn and Ned had that sweet last domestic sex scene and now Catelyn is just kind of broken in spirit. Uh, Bran, of course, had was had his dreams of knighthood and then the Knight of the Kingsguard threw him from the tower and you see Arya and Jon struggling to grow up. We'll see it a lot with Sansa later on in the book. And it's... You know, it's, you have that palpable feeling in the first time you read a Game of Thrones that you're, like, descending a staircase into darkness so yes. that you're, like, 
you're like, or you're in the 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 garbage area in the first Star Wars movie when the walls start closing in. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like it's reading this book for the first time. It's it's like you, it's like you're in a vice because uh, you can sense the terrible things are coming, but you don't know exactly what shape they're going to take or how severe they're going to be or how quickly they're going to pile on top of each other. And uh, and with Catelyn, as we'll get to a little later in the episode, uh, all that sense is really strong because on reread, because we know it's headed towards Lady Stoneheart, right? And that all of all of these events and all of these breaks and all of these kind of tears in her soul are leading her to becoming the ultimate incarnation of uh, vengeance and rage and hatred. Yes. Absolutely. So, so that's yeah, really really strong character work, and we see that you know, like I said, throughout the chapter. But the interesting thing about this chapter, though, is that it's not uh, – Callan Stark has a major place in the chapter, but that those aren't the only encounters that John has with people in the chapter – in this chapter. He has pretty positive ones with Rob and Arya, and um, that's it, – it's a great um, – I don't know what the best way to describe it is. It's, it's a great uh, – it's, it's structured really well to have those three encounters – so that we, so that yes, the walls are constricting, like from um, from the first uh, from episode four uh, of Star Wars. But at the same time, there is still light there too. There's there's some warmth in there that we can see in the family dynamics between John and Rob and John and Arya. Oh, that's a very good point. I mean, we have to feel that, or, or the loss doesn't mean anything. Right. I mean, it it has to. You have to feel that warmth in order for your heart to be properly torn out later. But yeah, I love the contrast among all the different. Uh, scenes, little meetings that encounters that John has in this chapter. Like he descends uh, after that final meeting with Catelyn, he descends to meet with Rob in the courtyard and say goodbye. And you get this immediate uh, public versus private contrast. Like, you know, he was in this quiet little room alone with Catelyn and Bran. It's very silent and very just, you know, death is heavy on the air. And then he goes outside where everyone is moving and bustling and has jobs to do. And Rob is given orders. Uh, So, that you know, it's a great contrast within the chapter, and also sets up the dynamic we're going to see in Catelyn three, where Catelyn has retreated into herself, and Rob is the one taking charge in Winterfell, right? And uh, eventually has to come up and reach out to her and say, "Look, I'm trying, but I'm young. I need your help at doing this." Right, right. And you also get a great contrast in that in his farewell to Bran and Catelyn, you got the sense that. Like I said, everything was bubbling up from the surface. John was tearfully saying goodbye to Bran, everything coming out at once. Catelyn was saying these things to John. she kind of always wanted to say. Um, and in the scene with Rob there, he's holding back. He lies about Catelyn and says it was very kind. Uh, he says, leaving is harder than I thought, uh, as a kind of just like oblique reference to what's going on with Bran. Yeah. Uh, so, which again, it's very realistic. It's very much two 14-year-old males who think emotions are for girls <laughs> try not to weep in front of one another when they very clearly just want to weep in front of one another at this moment, it, which is, it's, it's very, it's, but they still get the emotion across. They still, they, they still hug fiercely and Rob talks about John being all in black when next he sees him, uh, which is great. Like it's, he, Rob is trying to make it cool what John's doing. Like you're going to be, you're going to look like a badass when next time I see you again, that's a very great, like young men way of trying to make the other guy feel good about what's going on. I also like, uh, and you, yeah, go ahead. No, I also like to the, um, the dynamic of, of John calling Rob Stark and then Rob responding of, of calling John snow. Um, you know, you, in a, in a way it's, it's funny because in, in Catlin, that distinction of John being a snow and being Ned Stark's bastard 
has all sorts of negative connotations. But here, it's almost like uh, I don't know. It's it's almost like fraternity brothers calling each other by their last name. You know, it's almost like you know, a booth. And then you being like, hey, Heartline, you know, that sort of thing. Like, good seeing you, Booth. Good seeing you, Heartline. You know, take care. When I see you next, you'll, you'll be in all black. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. I, I really love that, the, that Rob John dynamic. Um, yeah. I, yeah. And it, it gives us a great image that not only John, but, uh, Sansa comes back to later in the series, which is this, this image of Rob in the snow with the snowflakes melting in his hair, which is just this great poetic, romantic, cinematic image that you know you could just you can just imagine perfectly in your head uh this 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 lost little again slice of innocence that all the starks are trying to return to this last time that they were all together that you know rob the lord had was still had some childish joy in him before he had to grow up way too quickly uh and then the and just the notion of you know heat uh, combating the cold you know the, that summer was still in rob at this point he was still young winter had not yet come uh, and uh, it relates back to what we were talking about with the Winterfell Hot Springs about how that, you know, the the, the warm kind of blood rushing through a cold yep. place and keeping it alive and vibrant is very much there with Rob. Uh, he, you kind of get because he's he's the it's he's the Stark in Winterfell, at least for the for a few short chapters until he goes off to, to fight in the south. So it fits that he kind of is presented as his castle in this moment and is, uh, kind of has the same feel to him as Winterfell with the Hot Springs. And it also, this might be a stretch, but when I was rereading it this time, I felt like it might be a hint at, like, you know, later on Rob's, Rob's lusts, his hot blood is going to be a <laughs> problem for him and it's going to cause difficulties in his campaign and that will, you know, symbolically melt his his uh, his hopes. Hmm. Uh, again, might be a, might be a stretch, no, but like something that, that came to mind when I, when I read the meeting this time around. No, I, I like it. I think it's a really good um, uh, thing to bring up. And I think it's – I don't know if it's intentional on George's part, but, I mean, we did talk about in previous episodes how different parts of Winterfell uh, symbolize different characters, you know, Bran and the Crows and uh, John – being the um, uh, the hot springs in the uh, you know having the fire of being Rhaegar Targaryen's son in the uh, the cold walls of, of Winterfell and how the walls are warm because of of uh, or rather being in the the walls of, of Winterfell uh, and that being uh, symbolizing John I think this that's a I think it's a really good catch to be honest. Well, thank you, husband. I appreciate you. Yeah, uh, but you had an you had an interesting idea about this scene too in terms of. How it, how it contributes to Rob and John's relationship? Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting to me that this is the, I believe it's the second and the last scene between John and Rob of them interacting. We see them interacting in Brand One, where they're racing in the snow, and uh, that's a that's a cool scene. Uh, but here, it's the only other scene we have of Rob and John interacting, and we get uh, Martin showing us the warmth of their relationship and their friendship. They are. Um, they're, they're not, I don't know if they're best friends. I believe that Rob considers Theon his best friend. Uh, I think he says something of that later in, in A Clash of Kings after Theon betrays him. And that makes that betrayal much more pal- palpable and uh, and emotional for Rob. But but John and Rob's relationship is, is very close. They're, they're about the same age. I think that comes from George R. R. Martin in So Spake Martins has said that they're – uh, they were born very close to each other in terms of um, what, when they were born. So they're both 14 years old. Um, but I was wondering whether this scene was something that George felt that he had to write at the end of writing the Game of Thrones. So 
at the end at the end of a Game of Thrones in Jon Snow's arc, he has his midnight ride after he learns of Ned Stark's death, and he is determined to go join Rob Stark and join his army and serve at Rob's side. I wonder if maybe George was thinking as he's writing that scene that maybe he needs to reinforce the warmth and the closeness of the relationship between John and Rob because we only have that one scene in Brand One where they're both interacting. And they seem friendly. Maybe he thought that we needed that he needed a second scene showing them being close and showing a emotional reason why John would want to ride away from the Night's Watch and join Rob Stark in his campaign to to bring justice to the house that has killed their their father uh, because John believes that that Ned is his father. And so I, I did wonder if, if that was something that George at the end of writing, writing a Game of Thrones said, hey, I need something else that's going to emphasize this relationship more. Let me go back to an early John chapter and write this back in. And that is kind of part and parcel of George's style of writing. He thinks of himself as a gardener, as a writer, that is things that is that he writes organically. Things spring up as he's writing in the process. He'll write twists and turns in the story that he might not have envisioned originally, but do flow organically from the stories that takes place. And a lot of this bears itself out in the rewriting process where George was looking through his, his, um, through his manuscript and determines that there are things that needs to improve, whether it's themes, identities, plot points. And I do wonder whether that was at, at the heart of writing this scene. Although I, I absolutely love this scene. I think it's great, but I do think and I do wonder whether that um, it was it came at the end of writing a Game of Thrones when he realized he needed to strengthen the bond between Rob and John prior to John mounting his horse and preparing to ride away from from Castle Black. I think you might be onto something there. After all, I can easily imagine this chapter being just the Catalan and Arya meetings because you know you could it could just be a flip side, one positive, one negative. Right. And you could kind of snip out the structurally. You could snip out the Rob meeting altogether, uh, and as you say, it does fit fit Martin's style of of going back and rewriting and adding things as later developments demand. Uh, of course, sometimes he's been screwed where he can't do that. Like as we've said, there are developments that don't pay off in the first book that I'm sure he would change if he could. Right. And and as uh, I'll say uh, for the nth time, to as we'll get a little <laughs> later in the episode, uh, it's very much fits how this scene is later used in John's storyline as this kind of mm-hmm. memory that torments him that he's trying to get back to. So that does fit the idea that Martin wrote it specifically with that in mind as a scene to cement John and Rob's relationship in John's mind. So it would give him a dramatic reason to want to abandon his vows because that's something that's going to yes. be tugging on John throughout the series. Oh, yeah. So Martin may well have specifically, you know, gone back to this chapters once. Once Martin realized that John wanting to leave the Night's Watch was going to be a constant thing throughout the series, he may well have gone back to these early chapters and started to seed that more than he had before he made that decision. Yes, I think that's entirely possible. Yeah, for sure. And and I, I think it's a good if it was a, if it, if it was there from the beginning from the get go, uh, that's awesome. But if it's also something that George tacked on at the end of writing a Game of Thrones. That's even better, in my in my opinion. It shows an author who's willing to struggle and wrestle with his his writing and try to make it as good and as meaningful and uh, satisfying to the reader and to himself as as possible. Um, but that is not the final um, meeting that John has in this chapter. He also, as we have talked about, he sees Arya, and his meeting with Arya is a uh, 
a almost a a polar opposite with his meeting with uh, with Catelyn or his encounter with Catelyn. Uh, it's not uh, tense. It's not cold. It's not angry. It's not potentially abusive. It's very warm. It's friendly. It's uh, it's great. It's 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 heartwarming. I think that's that's probably the best way I would put it. It's it's a, it's a heartwarming encounter between the two. Yeah. After the scene with Catelyn, which was just so poisonous, and the scene with Rob, which sweet as it was, was still in the shadow of that scene with Catelyn. Uh, this is the scene with Arya, where you get a sense of a functional family relationship of John being well integrated into the household instead of always sticking sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, you, you know, John describes Arya as having dark eyes like his, and that's you know the fact that Arya has shared Ned's looks has always been a constant source of connection between them, as we've talked about before. Uh, or you have you know her her messy clothes, as you said in your synopsis about her packing them improperly. Or her, her just kind of her recklessness. I love the little detail where she jumps to hug John with needles still in her hand. Yeah. Almost, almost murdering him with, with his own goodbye gift, uh, which is a great, great kid thing, as certain stuff we've talked about with Bran and Arya before. But it also uh, dovetails perfectly with John's uh, feeling of being kind of a, an outsider in Winterfell. And, the, you know, that she, she feels that way, too. She feels kind of left out in her social systems. That She feels like she never knows quite what to do in social situations. And, sh- and so they make each other feel better. It's that classic, you know, it's easier to be an outcast when there's two of you. Because then, then you're not outcast anymore. You're, you're in members of your own little tribe. Uh, so that's, like you say, that's very heartwarming. And even... And you get great little adolescent moments like a quote, John found himself grinning like an idiot, which I love. Uh, I think that's a much better teenage thing than anything that happened in John's first chapter because yes. much like Arya, John comes down hardly, comes down hard in his own emotional responses and like thinks of himself as a fool for having them. Uh, you know, probably that's a defense mechanism in part. And in John's case, I'm sure it's trying to be manly and tough in part as well. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. I'm sure he's thinking back to the harvest feast and how he cried in front of everybody, and how much that embarrassed him. So maybe he's thinking, you know, grinning like an idiot, like I shouldn't. I should have a stoic, stone face. Maybe that yeah. gets back to Tyrion's advice to him too. Uh, so, but I, I think that uh, some parts of John's emoness feels a little ham-fisted. Uh, but that that little moment feels feels very real to me, so I like that. Lots, like you say, like lots of just little details. I think the John Arya relationship feel very strong. Yeah, like they've they just that they've unlike John and Catelyn, who clearly have never had this conversation before. You get the sense with John and Arya just how many times they've talked, how many times they've hung out, how easy and familiar their conversational pattern is. Uh, that even in this unexpected environment with everyone leaving and this new gift, that it, it's they still have a routine, which is great. No, it really is, and it's it, it's heartwarming, and uh, you, you know, it's one of those those scenes that translate really well into the show. Uh, I, I felt that Kit Harrington and Maisie Williams's performance in in that scene in I believe it's episode two, season one, episode two, was was great. I think it was awesome um, and heartwarming for me. Uh, when when Art when uh, when Maisie jumped into Kit's arms, and uh, and I thought that was really cool, and uh, made me made me smile because again. <laughs> in my mind, again, because I had seen season one and season two before I read the books, uh, my the background of that was the end of episode one is Bran being pushed from the window, and that being that moment that you're like, oh my gosh, like this is this is something different and new, and I, I'm feeling like wretched inside. And then then you have that immediate contrast where uh, where where John and Arya are are there in the the Winterfell keep. 
uh, talking and, uh, and sharing warmth and, uh, um, expressing their, their own difficulties in being outsiders, but they have their own mini in group in being outsiders. So that is a cool thing to have for both of them. Um, I think it's awesome. Your point that they both look alike, they act alike. Um, and their, their relationship is very familial. And I remain extremely, extremely glad that it will remain familial and won't turn into this stupid love triangle that George R. R. Martin originally proposed for, uh, for, for a Game of Thrones. But that, uh, that role of John as an outsider that he shares with Arya has uh, a whole lot of interesting, um, ramifications in the remainder of the plot, both in this chapter as well as in John's remaining chapters in Game Clash, Storm and Dance. Um, so, like we've said before, the John Catlin dynamic is something that we're going to talk about at some length at the end of this podcast. But here I thought it might be good to get into the inner family dynamics and how John's fear of Catlin plus Catlin's responses to John communicate John's role as an outsider in the narrative to the reader. So, even though John, like Tyrion, like Arya, is a product of relative privilege as compared to the whole of Westeros, he is an outsider as, as Ned Stark's bastard. And that's common among noble bastards in Westeros. But like we said in our analysis of Catelyn 2, Jon Snow is distinct in that Ned both acknowledged him and brought his bastard home with him, a somewhat to very uncommon practice in Westeros outside of Dorne. This sets enmity between Catelyn and Ned, as we discussed in Game of Thrones Catelyn 2. So here in this chapter, though, George allows the reader to see some of those tensions come into greater focus. John's trepidations overseeing Bran, knowing that a stepmother's with Bran gives us a window into John's unique situation as the acknowledged bastard of Eddard Stark, and a bastard that has grown up around Ned Stark's trueborn sons and daughters. And so the interesting thing is that um, this chapter opens with John having stayed away from Bran's room because he knew his status as a bastard and knew of Catelyn's distaste for him because of his acknowledged and living around the Stark's bastardy. John's fears are confirmed when he enters Bran's sick room and Catelyn tells him to leave and that we don't want to. The quote, we, unquote, has Catelyn implying herself in Bran, but I wonder whether this chapter is speaking about John being at Winterfell altogether. altogether. Winterfell doesn't want you, John. You don't belong. Ned should have never brought you back with him. So John kind of internalizes his role as an outsider to Winterfell for the rest of the narrative. Later in A Storm of Swords, in his crypt dream, he thinks, quote, up above, he heard the drums. They are feasting in the great hall, but I am not welcome there. I am no Stark, and this is not my place. The quote-unquote, I am not welcome here is a chorus line to Catelyn's quote-unquote, we don't want you here. But there's a bit of tragedy in John's dream as well. Remember our title for our fifth episode? And uh, if you don't, I'll remind you with the full quote by Ned. It's quote, she was a Stark of Winterfell. Ned said quietly, this is her place. Kind of a really eerie parallel contrast to John's A Storm of Swords dream. John's outsider, quote, this is not my place, contrasts and parallels, and almost certainly deliberate on George R. R. Martin's part, with Ned Stark's statement about Lyanna being as about Lyanna as this is her place. The tragedy of John's outsider status is that John really isn't an outsider. Though Catelyn may tell John that we don't want you here, the reality is that John, by status by status of his mother, Lyanna, isn't truly an outsider. And if events in Game of Thrones season seven pan out in the books, i.e., that Rhaegar and Lyanna married, John isn't a bastard either. He's royalty. So John has built so much of his identity around this idea of him being an outsider. But the reality is that he's not an outsider. So I really kind of wonder what that revelation will do to John when he gets it in season eight of Game of Thrones or in The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. In Game of Thrones, 
we, as the watchers, know that John is uh, not Ned Stark's son. We also know that he's the product of Rhaegar and Lyanna, and we also know that he's the product of Rhaegar and Lyanna's marriage. But John doesn't know any of these things yet. When John returns to Winterfell in season eight, it's going to be a major moment for him, and I do wonder what it will do to him as a character. And I'm eager to find out what David and Dan have planned, which I believe is based off of what George R. R. Martin has planned. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch and to read when we can actually get The Winds of Winter or Jim Spring. Beautifully said, sir, especially about how it's really stuck with him. This is the the primal scene for John feeling like an outsider, this and the Harvest Feast, of course. And as you noted with that quote from Storm of Swords, it's stuck with him the whole time. I mean, this is, you know, this is really the chapter where Winterfell is established as a place of memory for the Starklings who leave it behind. You know? Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get more chapters in Winterfell from Bran's perspective, one more from Catelyn, uh, Theon later on in the series. But so much above Winterfell in this series is a memory, is the past tense, is people flashing back to these early chapters and thinking about how much they want to get it back and they can't. Uh, as I said, the image of Rob with the snowflakes melting in his hair that comes up with Sansa as well as John, mm-hmm. uh, and the chap- this chapter ends with John saying that the, the memory of Arya's laughter warmed him, kept him warm on the ride north to the Wall, like a, a direct contrast with Bran having a vision of John growing colder and harder in the North. So, if uh, life in the Night's Watch and eventually his assassination made John hard, you know the memory of Arya is what keeps him warm and human. <laughs> um, but you know, Catelyn's words remind him that. Winterfell is pain for him as well as pleasure. It's it's a source of real uh, hardship and an existential uncertainty. The outsider status you were talking about, and his the, his memories include like the time that Ross said he could never be Lord of Winterfell. That's something that he comes back to every bit as much as the the memory of Arya's laughter. And I think you you really see that in the the threefold structure of the chapter that we were talking about earlier. You yes. have you know Catelyn reminding him why he's leaving. You know he's he's saying goodbye to Bran. Bran is leaving childhood behind and so is John and Catelyn reminds him why he felt so alienated here and then you have Rob in which they have this fierce affection but also the the divide is clearly there uh, in part because Rob much as he loves John Rob is an insider at Winterfell mm-hmm. and doesn't feel like an outsider the way John and Arya both do which is why the Arya conversation is the most intimate and emotionally honest of the bunch uh, you know, this that's that's the part of Winterfell that John doesn't want to leave behind, which is symbolized perfectly by him giving her a sword forged in the Winterfell Forge by Micken. And, you know, his needle has that kind of connection to Winterfell and home. So it's John, it's John saying to Arya, "You were what I loved best in this place. Mm. You know, you were, you didn't, you made me feel at home here when no one else would." And I was thinking when I reread about how this would work tonally if you did it in reverse. If you had the nice meeting at the beginning of the episode with Arya and then ended it like if uh, it should have been you and Catelyn's sobs were how the chapter ended and that's how John left Winterfell, what a different kind of mood we would have. Because um, the, uh, the mood it, the, the mood we had we would have if we did that would be like John's closing the book on Winterfell. Like this, it's time to leave. It's time to go. This is your this you're getting kicked on your way at the door. It's this is. You need to leave this place behind. It's ultimately not your home and not going to be enough for you. But the structure that exists, you know, by the end, it's the the lingering memory of the laughter and love is still with him. And so you can see clearly that the the door, the, the book is not closed and that he's going to he's going to be making these decisions in a dance with dragons based on that lingering connection. He sends Mance south to rescue Arya and he prepares to march south 
uh, himself after receiving the pink letter. And when he receives the pink letter, he has that great paragraph where he flashes back to all of his family at Winterfell and these intense memories they have, he has of them, including Rob with the snowflakes melting in his hair. And that's what drives him to walk away from his duty and make that decision uh, because because it's not it's not done. This is not a tidy hero leaves home, you know, and, and never goes back again because he's resolved everything kind of story. He's, uh, the, the relationships he had here and the emotional kind of gains and losses he made at Winterfell stick with him and fester inside him and it's they're they're buried like a fish hook in his mind and they pull them gasping to the surface at the end of dance uh so i agree that outsider status is is so crucial not just to the mood of john's chapters but to the decisions he makes oh yeah and you can see all the seeds being sown for that here what's uh what's great about it too in dance is that uh, we talked about john and aria forming their own little in in group of of outsiders that aria becomes the lure of to bring John back to Winterfell to get to involve himself in the politics of the North and to send Mance Raider and the Spearwives after Arya to tr- or what he th- who he thinks is Arya, uh, as we learn is actually Jane Poole. Um, and that, that is a driving force in John's motivation. And it's really done well here. It's set up really, really strongly in, in this chapter about how strong their relationship is. You know, we talked about how. Um, that Rob scene might have been rewritten back into this chapter to show connect- connectivity and connective tissue between Rob and John, so as to give John a real reason to try and ride south for Rob at the end of a Game of Thrones. But here, I definitely see the seeds that George is planning for John to send Mance Raider after Arya because he has this extremely strong and warm and heartwarming relationship with Arya. And can you actually leave Arya in the hands of a real legitimate monster, a rapist, a torturer, a murderer? It's, 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 it's so emotionally poignant for John and for the reader when he thinks that Arya is actually in the hands of Ramsay Snow. I refuse to call him Bolton. You know, sue me. Um, he's always going to be Ramsay Snow in my mind. Uh, but, but that's, that's, it's emotionally resonant for us because you have this amazing setup and foundation for that relationship progressing forward. And we will talk about towards the end of this podcast about what the future might hold for John and Arya. But there's a great line, which I won't say right now, but it's a great line that gives me hope that eventually, even though the actual Arya is not married to Ramsay Snow, that is Jane Poole, that John and Arya will be reunited, and I really hope that the memory of Arya's laughter warms John after he feels only the cold at his final chapter when he's stabbed. That that memory of of Arya's laughter warms him as he's in the the consciousness of ghost, as has been proposed uh, by many folks in the wake of of a Dance with Dragons, and I. And I, and I do have hope for John that he won't just be this merciless killer, you know, slaughtering his enemies left and right when he returns in the winds of winter. And I do hope that Arya is that linchpin that keeps him, keeps a bit of John's noble heart, as our uh, our friend Adam Fellman has put it in his excellent and Dance with Dragons essay series on Jon Snow, keeps that noble heart in place. And uh, and yeah, I'm just uh, I'm excited to see what 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 that relationship is going to look like come down the road. As am I. So much emotional buildup and so much longing for a reunion between the two. That's that's ugh, that's going to be a potent scene to witness for oh, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
Um, so transitioning towards our, our likes and dislikes, we'll go over these quickly because we do have a lot more to cover in, in the podcast. Um, uh, briefly, my likes uh, of this can I could you could probably already tell uh, by my likes. I do love the dramatic writing between John and Catelyn. I like Rob and John's relationship as bros. I think that's really fun, uh, and also uh, is warm to me. And again, I love the uh, the Arya John dynamic as we've uh, talked about uh, a lot. And and I really like the uh, the reveal of Needle and the name Needle. I think that's that's clever on George's part and feels real, and it feels. Um, uh, just kind of like smart writing like it's something that Arya is is uh, doesn't doesn't like sewing and but needle is a is a great way to kind of subvert Arya's dislike of of sewing by naming her sword needle uh the things i dislike about this chapter are um it's it's this kind of the same interestingly from the Tyrion chapter that we talked about last week there's some wonky cliched writing there's this line at close to the very beginning of the chapter which is quote it was still warm and quiet too quiet for John's liking, unquote. And I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. But at the same time, like it was quiet, too quiet is is just it's very cliched at this point in time. Um, uh, even when George is writing a Game of Thrones. Oh, I was gonna say it's a joke. I mean, more often these days you see it being parodied than played straight. Like a, a character goes, it's quiet, too quiet, and then like a piano falls on their head or something. <laughs> right. Like it, that's. It's played satirically, so I, yeah, obviously this was over 20 years ago, but even by the mid-90s, It's Quiet, Too Quiet was, I think, was played out. I agree. Yeah. And then there's a, there's one other line. There's, there's a few other lines in there, but this one stuck out to me. It's, it's kind of a little bit wonky writing. Um, John is thinking about Catelyn, and he thinks, quote, not for a moment had she left Bran's side, unquote. Uh, I, 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 my jaw is kind of like moving back and forth when I'm saying that that sentence, so it feels... Uh, uncomfortable and it, it just kind of feels like a little bit wonky. Uh, just say Catelyn hadn't left Rand's side and you can communicate that without all the extra words there. Exactly. Or just, you know, convey her hair is a mess, her eyes are hollow, she's trembling, she looks stiff. Like you can right. describe how she looks and we will get the impression that she's never left Rand's side. You don't have to just directly tell us. Exactly. We'll get the idea. But, you know, show not tell is, is the, the the number one rule of always. Um... I agree. My likes and dislikes are very similar to yours. Uh, I love the the sheer range of dynamics at work in this chapter is great. Not just that how good all the conversations are, but how widely they swing tonally, but how Martin makes it work. You have this really fraught, uh, contemptuous, tense relationship between John and Catelyn, mm-hmm. and you have the, the kind of rough, shoulder-punching, fraternal relationship between John and Rob, and then a very sweet and protective and... Uh, open relationship between John and Arya and they mm-hmm. all they all feel earned and they all feel they all feel equally realistic at least to me uh, and Martin shifts between those tones really well and this it could it would have been very easily for this chapter to just have one of those tones and I think any sticking with any one of them for the whole chapter might have felt uh, kind of belabored uh, or stilted and shifting between them with ease really shows what a handle Martin has on the kind of moods he wants to get across having said that uh, the dialogue is a bunch of what you quoted in the synopsis is really strong, but I agree the internal John's internal monologue is still pretty weak at this point. And yeah. uh, it's, it feels like Martin didn't quite have a handle on what he wanted to do with his mini Aragorn at this point in his story <laughs> because he can't John isn't really making big decisions yet and doesn't have an ideology yet, but you also can't use him. He's not young enough 
then you can use him in the way you can use Bran and Arya where the point is what they don't understand and what they miss and you're supposed to fill, kind of fill in the pieces yourself and mm-hmm. understand what their limits are. John's, John's too old to really do that, especially if you're going to play up as Martin does early on this the bastards notice everything theme. Yes. So I think he was kind of caught in between a couple of things here and ended up with a lot of forced writing, you you brought up a couple of great examples of that. Uh, so it might just be because John's so reactive in these early chapters. Yeah. But as the, as the story goes on, as John gets put in genuine peril and has to make genuinely difficult decisions, uh, then that is when he really starts to become. That's just when his his thoughts become more interesting. Like when he has to make the call about Egret, when he's getting mentored by Corin Halfhand, uh, when he has to try to be an undercover spy and a mix among the wildlings. That's really when John's internal monologue gets good. But early on in Game of Thrones, there's not the same kind of dexterity that Martin has writing Tyrion's thoughts or Danny's thoughts mm-hmm. or uh, Catelyn's thoughts. No, I, it's just not quite there yet. Yeah, it's almost like that uh, That George had to put John through his crucibles and he has multiple crucibles um, in order to like, flesh out who John is as a character in his own mind and his own writing. And that feels... That feels like a very Martin-esque uh, a way of writing that, that, again, that kind of Gardner style of writing that maybe he didn't have – totally have John figured out early on. He knew that that John is the secret uh, is the secret prince is, is a trope. Um, you know, you have it as far back as the Arthurian legend, but he didn't know how to make that distinct and unique in a way that – that is interesting and and, uh, and and dynamic, but he does end up writing more dynamic – a more dynamic John as he progresses into uh, John's uh, crucibles, uh, which is a uh, yeah something I'm looking forward to getting to as we progress in through John John's arcs uh, all the way to the end of A Dance of Dragons. Me too. Uh, speaking of setting things up to pay off, this is a section we've been kind of hinting towards the entire episode, but there is a, a ton of groundwork and foreshadowing. That gets done in this chapter for oh, their yeah. developments for a bunch of different characters. Uh, you caught a couple uh, great notes that I did not notice at all about some subtle hints at warging among the Starks and their direwolves. Yeah, it's 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 funny. Like I was uh, I was having um, I've, I've had multiple conversations with our friend Matt, that is AKA Joe Magician on Reddit and on Twitter. Uh, magic is not something that I generally gravitate to, to in this seer in this in a Song of Ice and Fire. For me, it's more the politics, um, the warfare. Uh, some of the character stuff and identity things, but I'm really kind of enjoying finding little things that Martin's kind of sprinkled into these these early chapters that talk a little bit about the magic side of it of Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, one of the magic sides of Song of Ice and Fire is the warging, and we get two subtle warging hints here um, in John's chapter. We have quote Rob seemed to have grown as late as if Bran's fall and his mother's collapse had made him stronger. Grey Wind was at his side. So what it seems like that George is communicating here is that Rob may have genuinely have been growing uh, as a result of Bran's fall and having to take him on a stronger leadership role in uh, in Winterfell as a result of Catelyn kind of being MIA, being at Bran's side. But then that sentence, Grey Wind was at his side, seems to me to indicate that maybe some of Jon's strength and his growing up as, as a result of his connection with this direwolf. And as George has talked about, all of the Stark kids – that is all of them. That is Rob, John, Sansa, Arya, Bran, and Rickon. They all have a connection to their their direwolves. They are their their wargs. Um, whether they how aware they are of, of warging is um, 
is interesting is an interesting question altogether. But I do think that uh, that Rob, that Grey Wind providing a bit of growth in Rob is a uh, something that that kind of stood out to me when I was when I was reading this chapter. Yeah, those are great points. Uh, I definitely. I had not picked up on the warging, but you definitely pick up on if you read this chapter that the wolves are gradually insinuating themselves into the kind of moment-to-moment lives of the Starks. You have Ghost nuzzling John's hand to give him the strength to face Catelyn. You have the summer howling outside to kind of cue the mm-hmm. conversation oh, between yeah. John and Cat. So you get the sense that the direwolves are, you know, they're not running the show certainly, but they're they're they're. They're blending in, you know, they're kind of, they're merging into the yeah. background. They're becoming part of Winterfell and just part of the overall environment. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's stuff, that's some of the stuff I really love coming back to in these early Winterfell chapters, especially since, you know, a lot of, uh, there's, there's been some payoff, of course, the connections, psychic yep. connections between these Starks and their wolves, especially with Bran. But a lot of it is still to come. We still have... Yet to see John in Ghosts, as you mentioned earlier. We still have yet mm-hmm. to see the reunion between Arya and Nymeria, which is one of the most anticipated moments, I think, in the, the whole series. And oh, yeah. we we really don't know what Rickon's been up to since last we saw him, but he always seemed to have a really strong intuitive connection with Shaggy Dog, so that might have developed further. So I'm definitely excited to see what Martin has in mind uh, for the for Worgen going forward. I think it's going to play a really big role, especially in Winds of Winter and probably oh, yeah. in Dream of Spring as well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, on the kind of the same note about Arya, there's a uh, a, a little line that uh, is, I mean, I don't know if this is actually working or if it's uh, something else at work here, but I do think that's probably working. And the line is, quote, Arya would only have to point and the wolf would bound across the room, snatch up some whisk of silk in her jaws and fetch it back, unquote. Uh, I think it's probably that Arya is pointing at a, you know, an element of clothing and uh, communicating psychically, as you put it uh, so nicely, uh, to uh, Nymeria to go grab that piece of clothing and bring it back. She doesn't have to say anything. She only has to point, and the wolf goes and grabs clo- the the piece of clothing, and brings it back to her. Um, so it's 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 interesting. Yeah, it's it's really good, and I do think that you're right. You're spot on that the winds of winter and a dream of spring. We were going to see warging having a major major impact here. I mean, I mean, you know, we talked about the last episode of the episode before about how. In Arya's dance chapters, you know she is has a psychic connection with Nymeria across the Narrow Sea from Bravos to the Riverlands where Nymeria is operating, and she's uh, that seems. And George has said that uh, Nymeria's wolf pack and Nymeria herself is a uh, how do you say it? Uh, he was he's kind of said it funny. Um, uh, he said you don't leave a giant wolf pack hanging on the wall. Sort of the same, which is kind of a, a paraphrase of Chekhov's gun, which is you don't leave a gun hanging on the wall if you don't mean for it to go off in the third act. Uh, so we are probably going to see the wolves go off in the third act of A Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, that's going to be uh, interesting to see if we're going to see it through Arya's uh, perspective as a as a warg out in Bravos. Yeah, uh, that's definitely going to be some of the more metal elements of Arya's story. I'm definitely looking forward to that paying off. Uh, speaking of Arya, there's of course the, we get the classic line in this chapter when John is giving her needle of uh, sticking with the pointy end, his sword fighting lesson, and that's something that comes up over and over again for Arya as well. For example, it comes up in a really emotional fashion at, near the end of A Game of Thrones when she kills her first person. She kills the stable boy when she's trying to flee the Red Keep, 
and uh, her, all her training from Sirio falls away, and all she remembers is sticking with the pointy end. And, quote, she stuck him with, with the pointy end, driving the blade upward with a wild, hysterical strength. <sighs> so, back to the, the fall of innocence as the central theme of the Game of Thrones, this very kind of sweet, loving, not a tongue-in-cheek brotherly advice ends up being the thing that well, sticks in her head right. uh, when she when it comes to actual bloodletting, and it is it pays off in this way that's not you know innocent or dashing or daring at all, but violent and horrifying, and like the horses are screaming, and she she's haunted by it and thinks about him later. Uh, so you can you can definitely kind of see that fall over the course of a Game of Thrones in terms of what what needle has come to signify for her, but. Uh, it also comes up in a more positive way later. Yeah, it, it, it is more positive when uh, when Arya is remembering John's words in A Feast for Crows because she has that pivotal moment where the uh, the kindly man tells her that she ha- that she has to get rid of her Stark identity. That is all the elements of clothing and the sword that she has, and um, she thinks, "quote She stood on the dock. That is the dock of Bravos, pale and goose fleshed and shivering in the fog. In her hand, needles seemed to whisper to her." Stick him with the pointy end, it said. And don't tell Sansa. Again, lines from Game of Thrones, John 2. Micken's mark was on the blade. It's just a sword. If she needed a sword, there were a hundred under the temple. Needle was too small to be a proper sword. It was hardly more than a toy. She'd been a stupid little girl when John had made it for her. It's just a sword, she said aloud this time. But it wasn't. And I think that is a, a, a really... Um, emotional moment for Arya that signifies a couple things. Uh, it signifies her, the, the strength of her relationship with John. Um, it, it, it shows uh, that Arya has a great memory because she's remembering these lines from at this, at that point in the story, two years in the past. Um, but the other thing it, I think it also does is that it symbolizes that Arya's ultimate place isn't in Bravos, isn't with the, the faceless men and that needle isn't just a sword as you know, you like to say, Needle was Jon Snow's smile. Needle symbolizes her Stark identity and what she had left behind in in Westeros. Uh, so I think she's she's again. We said this before, but I think that she's coming back, and I uh, I, I think that um, it's a really good and emotional moment in the um, in in Arya's storyline. And I do think that sticking with the pointy end will probably end up coming back again come the Winter Winter or or Dream of Spring. And I do hope that. Uh, yeah, I do hope that it's uh, it remains a resonant point for Arya to uh, to bring her back to uh, back to the fold, so to speak. Agreed. I love that passage in the Feast for Crows. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Arya's story. Uh, it, it reminds me of it's like the equivalent almost of the Snow Castle scene for for Sansa in her last chapter in Storm of Swords. Another one of my favorite passages in the whole series, where. You know, Littlefinger said he was going to take her home, brought her out of King's Landing, reveals he tricked her and brought her to the Vale instead. And so as the snow falls on the Eyrie and she's kind of sifting through everything she's undergone over the course of the three books up to that point, she wanders out into the courtyard and starts building a castle from the snow and she eventually realizes it's Winterfell and it becomes kind of a catharsis for her. It becomes a place where inside its walls, inside the snow castle's walls, she can... Uh, tell Littlefinger directly how pissed she is that he didn't take her home and that she considers it a betrayal. She says she's like drawing strength from that symbol of home. And the same thing is, is true with Arya Needle. Like I said earlier, you know, Winterfell has become this, this totem of the past for all the Starklings and something they can't quite reach, but they're always thinking about 
And it's it's the source of their inner conflict. It's, it's Winterfell or whatever it is they're doing, whether it's Lord Commander in Jon's case, uh, training under Littlefinger in Sansa's case, training with the Faceless Men in Arya's case. It's, it's always, do I keep going with this or do I go back to Winterfell? That's always the driving tension. And so much of that is... is seated here in this in these early chapters you can this is this is what they're trying to get back to is is the mood and and tone and dynamics that are captured here early on uh you can there's also a, a couple other uh, little bits of foreshadowing set up uh, for john and Ari's later stories that you can see in this dynamic for example the john tells aria when she asks how she's even gonna be able to practice with needle that she'll find someone to practice with in king's landing and of course she does. She gets Syria Pharrell, uh, one of everyone's favorite secondary characters in The Song of Ice and Fire, and we'll have plenty to say about him uh, in episodes to come. There's another line from John, uh, quote, different roads sometimes lead to the same castle. Who knows? When he's talking, when Arya's talking about how much she's going to miss him. So that could very well be a blatant hint that John and Arya will one day uh, meet again, maybe maybe at the Red Keep or at Castle Black, if we're going to take that, depending on how literally you take that line in terms of the actual castles they went to. Could be neither of those, could be Winterfell, could be somewhere else entirely. But that is a strong hint that John and Arya will indeed reunite, as we all hope and feel uh, for our little Starklings getting back together and having a family again. Sniff, sniff. Uh, in a slightly less heartwarming direction in foreshadowing, in the John Catelyn conversation, as mentioned a little bit earlier, there are strong hints of her later transformation into Lady Stoneheart, specifically two moments when she is regarding John. Quote, something cold moved in her eyes, and then later on, quote, her eyes found him that they were full of poison. And the reveal of Lady Stoneheart in the final sentences of A Storm of Swords is keyed around her eyes, that the worst thing about her torn up uh, rotted, decaying face is her eyes, and quote from Merit Frey, the POV of that epilogue chapter, her eyes saw him and they hated. So, uh, that's something, I, I mean, I love most, I love most things about Catelyn's chapters on the whole, but one aspect of them I really enjoy upon reread is looking for the signs of Stoneheart, the, the kind of level she's descending that makes, because that transformation, as shocking as it is, metaphysically, you don't expect Catelyn to come back from the dead, the fact that she comes back from the dead as a rage-fueled revenge zombie makes absolute sense if you look at the course of her arc over the three books and scenes like this. You know, you can see it boiling up inside her and she starts losing her composure, her her armor. Uh, you can see her starting to fall apart after Ned dies. You can see it again after she thinks Bran and Rickon are dead, uh, after, after Hoster dies, and then, of course, for, for good at the Red Wedding, the, the kind of the, the complete collapse comes for Catelyn Stark. Uh, and the couple other little bits of foreshadowing for the other characters uh, in this chapter, nothing too depthful, but definitely hints of where Martin is going with them. Uh, John describes Bran's fingers as being, quote, like the bones of birds. Uh, obviously just getting across how kind of weak and fragile he looks in this in this moment as he's comatose, but also uh, a hint from George R. R. Martin that Bran will fly even before we get to him doing so in his dreams a few chapters down the line. Uh, for Regarding Rob, uh, John mentions in terms of Bran that, quote, you Starks are hard to kill, which is, of course, again, another, like, trying to be tough and talking about emotions while still being a badass moment from John. But it also might be an illusion that Rob himself is going to die. That he will, as hard as he will prove for Tywin to kill, that Tywin will ultimately succeed at killing Rob. 
Uh, and it's just, of course, uh, but it's also perversely a line about all the fake out Stark deaths. Uh, that Bran didn't die for being thrown from the tower, that he won't get killed by the cat's paw, he'll survive the sack of Winterfell, so will Rickon, Arya will survive a bunch of narrow scrapes, so will Sansa, so even though Rob himself, the one being told you Starks are hard to kill, will get killed, uh, generally speaking, John proves right. Starks are actually pretty hard to kill. They are really hard to kill. You know, um, besides Rob, I think Rob is the, I mean, the thing is, the funny thing is that Catelyn thinks all of her, not the funny thing, the tragic thing is that Catelyn thinks all of, all of her children are dead. Uh, with Rob's watching Rob die being that final moment where like it's all it just comes crashing down it's that huge you know it's so fucking awful for Catelyn that she has to experience thinking that all her kids are dead or married off to Lannisters or disappeared when in fact with the only child that's actually dead is the one that she just witnessed dying I'm not that that's makes it really uh, probably makes the impact any any better but um you know the the, the interesting thing is that by the um, by the end of A Storm of Swords, she's looking for Arya. She knows she's discovered that Arya's alive after she's encountered the Brotherhood Without Banners. So, um, but yeah, uh, I do agree that all those stars are going to have their scrapes and their fake out deaths, the things that George loves to do in the narrative. Uh, but I do think that's a, uh, um, I, 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 and I do have lots of questions about what John's ultimate fate is going to be in the story, whether he'll die for real by the end of the story. I've kind of gone back and forth a little bit about that. I do think that, that a character like Danny is doomed, but John may also be doomed. I think that's a, a real possibility, but I guess we're, we're going to have to see. Oh, no, I agree. It's a tough one with John because it's like, is, is does Martin want a better Aragorn or does he want there to not be an Aragorn? Like, that's yes. the argument, right? With John's fate, is like, is the point of John that he ends up a better king and a more fleshed out and thought through and tested king than the kind you typically see in fantasy? Or is the point that we shouldn't have a king huh. at the end and that John needs to sacrifice himself too? Um, and I can see you, you arguing that either way. And that and this gets into something we can discuss at length uh, throughout <laughs> the series and maybe even in a special episode. But there's always an interesting tension with Martin's politics in that he's clearly pointing us at you know, feudal nobility and monarchy being awful, exploitative systems that just get people killed endlessly uh, for no good reason and are, are built on these really unequal hierarchies. But at the same time, all yep. his main characters are nobles. All the the drama is filtered through their ambitions. And you do have characters like John or Bran that are seem to be strongly set up to be in traditional monarchy roles of some kind by the end of the series. So how Martin resolves that tension is going to be interesting. I've always suspected resolving that tension might be what's taking him so long huh. that he might be finding himself in a situation of, wow, politically, how do I do this in a way that makes it, you know, he's, he's, it's a lot to pay off. He's written himself quite a check in terms of the overall political thesis of A Song of Ice and Fire. And John is central to that. So so we'll see. Well, John's, John's fate is going to weigh heavily in either direction on that one. So we'll, yeah. see, we'll see how hard Jon Snow turns out to be to kill. It's, it's going to be... Uh, For George R. R. Martin, anyway. Uh, yeah, I think that's a uh, interesting point. Um, that that Jon's fate is might be tied with, with George's conception of uh, of government and what good government is. And you know, George is a... Uh, um, uh, I think it would be best described politically as a Kennedy-era Democrat, I think. And eventually that morphed into kind of the, the hippie anti-war... Uh, anti-war person of the left. Um, 
I, I don't know that we're going to see Westeros as a constitutional democracy. At the end of the story, I feel like that might be a, kind of a it, it doesn't read true to me right now, but I can maybe see elements of something as Magna Carta ish kind of coming to pass, and that being the pathway for us as as readers to be like, oh, well, maybe Westeros will actually change for the better. Uh, by the end of the story, maybe because, you know, the, the Magna Carta and all of these reforms in the feudal system comes as a result of the Black Death, right? You know, so a, a lot of it, not all of it. Some of them were in, in, in progress before the Black Death comes up. But the idea of serfdom kind of goes out the – not totally out, but somewhat out of the way in Western Europe because the lords and the uh, the nobility simply didn't have the peasantry to farm the land in some sort of – collective-ish type thing where you're supporting the nobility, uh, the, where it's kind of an exchange in, – in the romantic setting, an exchange between uh, the, the farms the, – the peasants provide the food, the lord provides the protection sort of thing. Um, but I, I I do see the the potential that there being some sort of signed document that – and, you know, we were having this – I think we were having a discussion on Twitter a while ago. We were on a way effing tangent, but that's okay. We were having this discussion on Twitter. Oh, oh, <laughs> it's good oh, stuff, though. A, a while ago about how when Stannis – of course, because we have to bring up Stannis in every episode. That's just – There we go. We've done our duty to the king. Yes. That's right. We have done our duty. Great or small, we must do our duty. Uh, we're, we're Stannis when he goes to the Mountain Clansmen and he asks for their loyalty. He doesn't demand their loyalty and that might be the, um, the foundations of some sort of eventual uh, – thing where the king has to ask his peasants or has asked has to ask his people or his lords or whatever it's going to be um, to reaffirm his ruler or, or some sort of thing because that is something that the English Parliament still do still does as a result of the uh, as a still result of the Magna Carta I think gosh I'm really like we're on a way effing tangent but yeah that's cool well, that we are we'll get we'll get back I promise in just a second but yeah I want to say I, I agree with what you said there I think that's probably the direction he's going to be going in Although, I mean, and part of me is like, well, what's so great about democracy, too, though? Like, is, is I mean, <laughs> I mean, just, just all of which is to say that, like, Vietnam, the, the war that radicalized George Martin and inspired his political thought and fostered his anti-war leanings was a war fought by a constitutional democracy. True. Very true. So it's not like constitutional democracies are immune to the horrors that Martin lays out in this series. Like... Constitutional democracies have soldiers that rape and maim and murder indiscriminately. Constitutional mm-hmm. democracies uh, have horrible class disparities and have leaders that are completely detached. Constitutional democracies have rampant corruption that goes on in the buying and selling of offices. Yep. Uh, you know, it's all, all those things, obviously, you know, there aren't literal guys with crowns who just sit around and demand taxes for nothing, but there are people who are close to that. So, I mean, obviously blanket statement democracy is a vast improvement on feudal monarchy i'm very glad <laughs> history has trended in that direction but i'm saying if, if a song of ice and fire expects me to believe that once you start voting the problems go away i'm gonna have a very difficult time swallowing that especially because like i mean you know mance raider coming by his crown in a, in a comparatively more democratic fashion didn't necessarily mean there were no problems with the way he was thinking about doing things or i mean the ironborn hold elections and look at them they're the worst people in Westeros, collectively speaking. So I, <laughs> true. I That's think very true. Wh- whatever direction, I, I hope that Martin picks a direction forward, and this is a difficult needle to thread. I hope he picks a direction forward that's inspiring, 
but realistic at the same time, which is a lot of the series has to fall into that kind of in-between zone. Well, okay. But I, I hope he pulls it. I hope he pulls that off. I mean, I feel like for me, like, I feel like, uh, this is an odd example to reach for, but like RoboCop, <laughs> like RoboCop is up against an unjust system that, you know, turned him into a machine and is planning to like pave over Detroit and is in league with the crooks and all this horrible stuff. And at the end, he hasn't actually really solved most of that. <laughs> like, yeah. he's been a hero, and he's killed the main bad guys and the ones that screwed him over. And he's going to be a true knight from now on, and he's found the... But he hasn't, like, you know, Delta City is still coming at the end of RoboCop. True. So part of me wonders if A Song of Ice and Fire is pushing in that direction, or a more relevant comparison in a scouring of the Shire direction, where you've won the day, but as, as he's mentioned, it's going to be a very bittersweet ending. And I wonder if that will come into play in the politics as well. Maybe we'll end with a sense of great political upheavals to come that are going to happen beyond the pale of the the space of the series, and you know we just have Brand looking ahead to them, uh, which would be kind of a cop out, but I could see Martin doing it if he feels like he can't make it happen on the page. Well, here's 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 a drive-by theory. What if? Bear with me. What if John's, yes, John's experiences in observing Mance Raider and the Wildlings are intended to provide foundation? For John coming to view the wildling way of selecting a ruler as the better way than simply a hereditary monarchy, just as a drive-by theory, I just thought of it right now. Uh, you can you can throw your 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 sticks and your stones at it, and that's fine. And, and I do think that it would it it can be cliched, and it can be it it can be written in such a way that it's not meaningful to the reader that readers will be like okay great so I'd close the last page of dream of spring john is elected by the lords by the northern lords as king of as king of winter and who sam is elected as king of the reach or something like that but i i don't think that's i don't think that's going to be the the case necessarily but i do think it's a potential maybe foundation for for john to be cuz i mean we do see elements of john being influenced by his um, by his experiences with the wildlings, he doesn't. He wants to bring them south of the wall. He doesn't see them as monsters from beyond the enemy. He sees them as the same people. They're they're Northmen. They have the blood of the first men flowing through their veins, the same as he does. And the the true threat, the only threat that really matters, is Stannis. Our boy says, is the others. And um, you know, John views the begins to view the wildlings in in a much different light as. Uh, than what he's departing Winterfell as in, in this chapter, as, as he's probably looking at the wildlings similar to the stories that Old Nan is telling him of monsters, and they mate with others and produce half-human children and those types of things. But there's a, there's a real humanity to them, as we find out in John's experiences with Mance and Tormund and Ygritte and Val and all those great characters that Martin introduces to us come Storm of Stores. That's an excellent point. Now I'm thinking of the speech on Independence Day. Uh, where it's, you know, it's where all the president's speech, where it's all about, you know, it's unity in face of the true enemy and that, you know, it will no longer be just an American holiday, but a humanity, holiday for all humanity and all that, all that glorious cheesy stuff. Uh, so I could, I could easily Love see yeah, John's story specifically trending in that direction. You heard it here first. It's just going to be Independence Day. It's going to be Independence Day with ice zombies at the end, folks. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, like like Emmett said, you heard that here first that A Song of Ice and Fire is Independence Day and is a true sequel to Independence Day. And, you know, as it happens, Independence Day was released in 1996. And guess what book was released in 1996? 
Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I'm gonna write a whole Tumblr post about this, guys. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start making character links. It's gonna be a whole thing. Get ready for it. Who's Will Smith? Oh, jeez, that's a tough one. It could be. I'm going with Jamie. I'm going with Will Smith as Jamie. Oh, okay, I could see that. Just 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 from just from the at, just from the attitude alone. I'm kind of because I'm kind of it's it's tough thinking who Randy Quaid could be because it's like is that Tyrion or is that like no, it's Jorah? Aaron Aaron Greyjoy. Okay. Oh, that works. I like that. That works a lot. But yeah, with the warning before, and that—that's—that's that's definitely. I can see that. All right. Well, I just have to. I have to. Jeff Goldblum is going to be an interesting one too. We'll have to think about that. Tune in next week to find out who Jeff Goldblum is <laughs> exactly. in our Independence Day. Our latest Patreon episode, <laughs> linking a song of ice and fire to the to film to the esteemed films of Roland Emmerich. Absolutely, absolutely. Damn straight. But uh, anywho, anyhow, but uh, but transitioning to a, a more serious topic. Um, one of the most uh, how would how would you how would you put it? One of the most discussed aspects of this chapter is that dialogue between John and Catelyn. Um, again, in that the three arc structure, which Emma talked about so so well um, a little bit earlier, is the in the first act you have John interacting with Catelyn Stark, and you have. Catelyn telling John that it should have been you and that being a focal point for a lot of people coming away with the impression that Catelyn Stark is either a bitch or is completely evil and uh, also potentially abusive to John as well. Um, so this is a, uh, this is an interesting um theory discussion is that it's not going there's not going to be a your theory is bad and you're ugly portion of this this is going to be more talking a little bit about um some of the background that george has talked about because george has addressed this question uh specifically in a so spake martin from 1999 and you know there is some modern thought that we should be bringing into the story now uh, some people and, and i i think this is a really bad way of, of looking at this but some people say oh we, you can't bring a modern perspective into a medieval setting because it is a medieval setting. No, fuck that shit. A Song of Ice and Fire is a medieval setting, but is written by a modern author with modern sensibilities and with modern uh, takes on on things that are occurring in medieval times um, or in a medievalish setting. And there are varying debates and degrees about how authentically medieval a song of ice and fire is and i've been reading some of that of, of late uh but we can we can set that aside for the moment so uh i guess the way to kind of go about this is Emmett, do you think catelyn stark is a bitch or do you think that she is evil <laughs> more the former than the latter i suppose if you're gonna make me choose between the two <laughs> no i think there are there are definitely good reasons for catelyn to feel the way she feels uh, that doesn't excuse her behavior necessarily, though. No. I think, you know, I don't... I think she's perfectly within her rights to hate Jon Snow. I wish she hadn't... I wish she'd done a better job of hiding it. Yes. Obviously, I think it's a lot to ask of anyone to raise their husband's bastard. Uh, especially in a situation where it's a political threat, as Catelyn points out, it might well be. But, you know, he's, he's still a kid, Right. At the end of the day, a kid in her household over whom she wields a great deal of authority. And, you know, that has to... 
as, as much as it's as a lot to ask of her, it's something I guess I suppose I do have to ask of her, even though I do feel more sympathetic to her motivations in and of themselves than I think a lot of people do. So no, I don't think... I don't think her motivations are wrong. I don't think she's coming at this from an incorrect place. I understand and sympathize with the position she's been put in, but that doesn't make what she says to John in this chapter okay. No, no, it it, it doesn't. And, um, you know, this is something that, like I said before, that George has addressed. So, in, in, in So Spake Martin uh, from 1999, uh, someone asks, the question I have is if Catelyn went out of her way to mistreat John in the past and which form this might have taken or if she tried to avoid ignore him. And then George responds, saying, mistreatment, in quotes, is a loaded word. Did Catelyn beat John bloody? No. Did she distance himself from her? Did she did she distance herself from him? Yes. Did she verbally abuse and attack him? No. The instance in Bran's bedroom was obviously a very special case. But I am sure she was very protective of the rights of her own children, and in that sense always drew the line sharply between Bastard and Trueborn, or issues like seating on a high table for the king's visit were at issue. And John surely knew that she would have preferred to have him elsewhere. Unquote. So what George is communicating here is that he doesn't view Catelyn's treatment of John as mistreatment, uh, or, or rather he thinks that mistreatment is a loaded word. Um, he is a little bit ambiguous uh, about whether it's, it's mistreatment or abuse. Uh, she does He does think that um, Catelyn's lack of physical or verbal abuse constitutes um, uh, non-abuse, for lack of a better term. Uh, but there is a um, there's something about what George is saying here that I'm not sure that he's he's totally read in on on what the um, what some of psychology has has said about what abuse can be. You know, he's George has, George said there that. Um, did she distance himself from her? Did she distance herself from him? Yes. Uh, and that she kept her – she was very protective of, the, of her own children's rights. And But it seems like that she, she, that Catelyn kind of gave John what we would call the silent treatment. And most psychologists these days would term silent treatment as abuse. And so this comes from Andrea Schneider, who's a psychotherapist, and I will link her in the show notes. And her – she says, quote – the silent treatment is a form of emotional abuse typically employed by people with, with narcissistic tendencies. It is, it is designed to, one, place the abuser in a position of control, two, silence the target's attempts at assertion, three, avoid conflict, resolution, or personal responsibility and or compromise, and four, punish the target for a perceived ego slight. Often the result of the silent treatment is exactly what the person with narcissism wishes to create, a reaction from the target and a sense of control, unquote. Now, that kind of takes us to the comfortable question of, is Catelyn Stark narcissistic? And I would say no, mostly no, I would say. She's not, she's not Cersei Lannister in that she doesn't view her children as extensions of herself. And that being the reason why that she's caring for her children. She does genuinely love her children. Um, she doesn't love John, And there are reasons why she doesn't love John, um, as she spells out in A Storm of Swords, when she's talking with Rob, she brings up the Blackfire Rebellions as a reason why John is a threat to any of her children because, you know, the bastards of Aegon IV, the, that became the Blackfires, they plagued the realm for 60-ish years after Aegon IV legitimized um, D- Daemon Blackfire and his, and his brothers and sisters. Um, but at the same time, it does – 
silent treatment, even though she has reasons like Emmett, like you said, it is abusive to for her to distance herself distance herself from him when you know he, again like you said he's he's just a kid like he didn't do anything wrong besides being born and you know Catelyn the person who is quote unquote at fault well I mean there's a couple of people who I guess at fault but I guess in this instance Ned Stark is most at fault for bringing John home and declaring him his his, his acknowledged bastard but he had really good reason to do that, and that is mostly to save the boy's life from Robert's wrath, which is um, was very fierce, and as we're going to find out in a Game of Thrones, still burns hot seventeen or fifteen years after Robert's rebellion. Yeah, those are all great points, and you know you can have a situation where well-meaning adults are doing their best, but still still create a situation which is profoundly harmful to a kid's well-being and upbringing, and I think that's what we have here. I agree that Catelyn's not narcissistic. Um, I guess you could say that some of the decisions she makes speaks to a grandiose sense of self-importance, but I don't think that's really what's motivating her no. with stuff like kidnapping Tyrion or freeing Jamie. I think those are mistakes for different reasons, uh, yep. like trusting her sister too much and like not thinking through Littlefinger and stuff like that, which we'll get into as the series goes on. Uh, and I do agree that a lot of the responsibility rests on Ned's shoulders for uh, creating this situation in the first place. But yeah, I mean, it was extremely harmful to John to, to ostracize him this way. And even thinking purely pragmatically, like, if you think he might be a danger, if you think he might rebel against you, be nice to him then. Like, <laughs> right. be really nice to him. Raise him to love you. Raise him to love your kids. Raise him to love the Starks in Winterfell and never want to do anything about it. I mean, I mean, I think Ned was trying to do that with Theon and was like half successful, but... Yep. If Catelyn had been on board with that with John, I think that could have removed any possibility of that happening. And it's not just the silent treatment. She like she told Rob that you know he can't ever be Lord of Winterfell. Which yes, that has political important political ramifications, but it's also encouraging your kids to not get along with him. Right. And that's you know that's that's a that's a harmful thing to do to, to within a group of of cohabitating children. And uh, rereading this chapter. I mean, the line that gets all the attention for good reason is it should have been you when she's referring to the John should have been the one to take the fall instead of Bran. Because that's a horrifying thing to say to another person. Right. I'm willing to give Catelyn something of a pass because she's uh, in intense grief and hasn't slept in days and is just at her worst state. And it's just things come out when you're in that moment. But it's not like she ever regrets it. And it's, it's she clearly means it. it's clearly been coming for a while. And it's a horrible thing to say. But what stood out to me upon reread was... The line, uh, I need none of your absolution, bastard, when John said it wasn't her fault that Bran fell. Because he's 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 trying so hard in that moment. Right. Like, he's not just looking past her and talking to Bran. He's trying to reach out to her as a person and say that, you know, I get that you're feeling grief-stricken, but this wasn't your doing. He's trying to forge this connection over what they have in common, which is their mutual love for Bran. Right. You know, that's what, that's what links John and Catelyn in this moment, right, as they both care very deeply about this injured young boy lying on this bed. And she just steps on that olive branch and just, like, throws it in his face. And that's there's a level of cruelty there that, again, I think anticipates Stoneheart. And for me, that, that demonstrates that she's now gone beyond her understandable motivations because even the opportunity to make peace, she's rejecting it when it's handed to her. So that's where you see, I think, that this has, however relatably it started, it has curdled within her. And I think that is, that's Lady Stoneheart in a nutshell, right? That Stoneheart has relatable motivations in terms of the Red Wedding being an absolute abomination and a horrifying act. But 
you know, that doesn't make, that doesn't make you feel good about a hooded revenge zombie with hateful eyes right. hanging Podrick Payne and Brienne of Tarth. Right. So that's that's a lot of Catalan's character. I think the understandable motivations that go wrong, which you know, that's tragedy right there, folks. So that's why Catalan's a great character. It is that. I do kind of like think that maybe that George kind of delves into this kind of the ugliest side of Catelyn Stark that we see in this John chapter and kind of crafts the character of Stoneheart around that, as well as bringing in the grief aspects that we see in the Red Wedding, um, because she isn't she is motivated primarily by vengeance, but she also has this really like intense sorrow and over over Rob because you know she's there staring at Rob's crown when Brienne sees her for the first time in a feast for crows. Um, but but I was curious. One of the things that's interesting is that in a feast for crows, we find out that Doran Martell hasn't shared his plans with Ariane, uh, his daughter, because he partially because he fears that she's going to spread word of of it. She's going to tell. Uh, Tyene and Tyene will tell the Fowler twins and when the Fowler twins know they'll tell everyone in all of Dorne but I don't get the impression of Catelyn Stark as a gossip here so kind of a, a what if to you what if Ned had come back to Winterfell maybe not immediately but within a few years when their relationship grows because again like we talked about in Catelyn's first chapter the relationship between Catelyn and Ned uh, didn't start out as warm, but it grew into warmth. What if, say, three or four years after they're married and they're together in Winterfell, they have Rob, they have Sansa at that point, that Eddard tells Catelyn in confidence that about Jon's true parentage? Do you think that would have? Do you think that was a major oversight on Ned's part not to trust Catelyn with that information or knowledge? It's a tough one. I I sincerely doubt she would ever deliberately let slip to anyone, even. Even her fellow Tollies, I think she would probably keep the secret. Purely out of self-preservation, if nothing else. Uh, because of the fear of Robert coming down on her. But I think where she would have difficulty is her attitude towards John would change. Yeah. Uh, because on one level, the fear has gone way up. Because now he's a threat, not just in and of himself, but of Robert coming down. On the other hand, now he's not Ned's bastard. Now he's just her nephew. Right. Like, he's he doesn't represent any... Now the threat... He's no longer a threat to her children's heritage. He's no longer a threat as himself. But he's an he's a, existential he's a threat, threat because someone would. He's a threat because someone would want to hurt him, right. and that's that's a very different kind of threat. So I think Catelyn. I think the and this might be might well be what Ned feared. I think her changing reaction to John might have been noticeable, and people might have taken taken note that the lady of the house was suddenly behaving very differently. Yeah. That wouldn't give away to anyone what the secret is. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's the constant conflict with Ned on this question, though. It's on the one hand, there were clearly more rational decisions he could have made. And on the other hand, though, nothing about what's motivating him in this regard is rational. And it's foolish to expect that of him because of Great. how intensely personal this is for him regarding the loss of his sister. So while I think he, Ned could have made decisions that would have been better for the well-being of both John and Catelyn... Uh, I, I can't hold him in contempt for making those decisions because uh, they were just driven by such intense emotional uh, loss on his part. And that's, again, another very human thing that in trying to heal your own wounds, you end up wounding other people. Yeah, that's I think that's an excellent point. And I do see where Ned is between a rock and a hard place where he's any move that he makes is a dangerous move. And he chose 
what he probably considered to be the least dangerous move, which was to bring him back as his acknowledged bastard and never to clarify the situation to Catelyn or or to anyone else, uh, as far as we know, not even his own internal monologue. And that's it's something that's going to be uh, fascinating as we go through Ned's chapters is how he is consistently suppressing memories of Lyanna and of Rhaegar and of John, and um, until like at the very end where he thinks that it would be good to talk with John if he went, because he's believing that he's going to be sent to the wall. Um, but yeah, so it's it's a uh, it's it's a great what if. Um, just thinking about the. Uh, what if that that Ned had told Catelyn? I, I do agree that there's a danger now of you know House Stark becoming a a tainted traitor to the crown because Robert Baratheon is willing to send assassins after Daenerys and Viserys uh, later on in Game of Thrones. What would happen if his best friend betrayed him and he finds out that he's hosting the bastard of Rhaegar Targaryen, his most hated enemy? up in Winterfell, would he call the banners and march on Winterfell? I mean, that's something that seems plausible from Robert's perspective because he's willing to, you know, unname, uh, he's willing to accept Ned's resignation as Hand of the King. And uh, doesn't he threaten to kill him when he does that too? After after the, uh, the small council meeting? I believe you're correct. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, uh, so Ned had good reason to do what he did, but it, it's always fascinating to kind of think of, think about these what if um, conversations and uh, decisions as well. As, as Martin's making in the narrative and that the characters inside the narrative are, are making. Uh, I, I am very curious if, and I believe that this is something that George will do either in winds or in, or in a dream of spring, um, depending if Stoneheart lasts that long. I do think that John's true parentage will be revealed to her in some way. And um, you know, it's interesting if you read closely in a feast for crows and our, our friend, a song of ice and fire read through on Twitter, just got to this chapter, which is uh, Jamie's fourth chapter from A Feast for Crows, where one of the Freys, his name is uh, Dan Wolfrey, very minor character, don't really have to remember his name, um, says that the uh, the Brother Without Banners are uh, striking in the Riverlands and then retreating into the uh, the Neck and into uh, Howland Reed's uh, services. So, seems like that there's a probability, potentiality that Stoneheart and Howland Reed have, have interacted, have interacted uh, since um, since she was turned to Stoneheart, and there's a possibility that Howland Reed might eventually reveal John's parentage to Lady Stoneheart. Uh, I don't know how how or why, but it does seem like a plausible narrative pathway that George will pursue come the Winds of Winter. Probably off page, maybe on page. I think it'd be cool to see it from like Jamie or Brienne's perspective for sure. I agree. That's a great catch about them retreating into the neck, and obviously we've been waiting a long time to see Howland Reed. So. Having him mixed up in all the Riverlands drama would be uh, would be terrific. Yeah, so maybe maybe Catelyn will have regrets about her treatment of Jon Snow, and uh, come later on in the story uh, if she, if she finds the truth out about him. Uh, but it's I don't know. We're, it's going to be one of those things we'll have to wait and see for the Winds of Winter, which uh, hopefully will be along here shortly. Any day now, guys. Any, any day. day. Now. Keep on uh, look to the skies, as Melisandre says. <laughs> So I think that about wraps us up for uh, this episode. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to us. It's a, it's a real pleasure uh, talking with you, good sir. And it's a pleasure having uh, so many folks interacting with us and listening to us and uh, uh, following us on Twitter and uh, responding to us. It's just, it's just a lot of fun um, being a part of this, uh, this fun reread experience with, with you guys. You said it. Uh, you can find our stuff, as always, on iTunes and uh, Podbean and SoundCloud. 
We'll provide the links. You can find our Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can go over there and check out our various reward tiers, including getting early access to the episode, show notes, asking uh, the kind of questions we answered at the top of this episode. Uh, you can follow us on social media, at uh, notacastasoif, and our email, uh, notacastasoif at gmail.com. You can find me on the social medias <laughs> at, uh, at poorquentin on Twitter and uh, poorquentin.tumblr.com on Tumblr. You can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, and you can find me as Brendan Beefish, always commenting and posting on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, which is reddit.com forward slash ASOIAF. So next week, we take our second trip across the Narrow Sea and our first of many, many weddings in A Song of Ice and Fire. And we get to explore this through the point of view character of Daenerys Targaryen. And man, I am, I have been like cataloging notes and things in my head to talk about because this is just going to be one of those fantastic chapters that we're going to uh, really get to dive in on. And uh, we're happy and pleased to announce that uh, next week we'll be joined by a Song of Ice and Fire deep thinker, luminary, extraordinary person altogether, Eliana, a.k.a. Glass Table Girl from the Maester Monthly Podcast and also as seen as Arithmetic on Twitter. So come back and join us next week with uh, Emmett. Eliana and me. It's going to be a monolith of a chapter to cover for sure. A lot goes on and uh, can't wait to have Eliana on for it. She always does great analysis, especially on uh, Danny's character and how Essos is written. So that's going to be great for sure. So thanks for listening as always, guys. Catch you next week. See you. The Nauticast Podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin and Brendan B. Fish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit. And the closing song is called Alaska Bye. Thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.